This is What We Will Abide, episode 67. I'm Sam Schindler. Jessica Idonik is Dean of Students at the Pennsylvania College of Art and Design, or PCAD, where I am in my second year of serving as an adjunct professor in the Liberal Arts Department. PCAD is a micro-college, providing BFA degrees in animation and game art, fine art, graphic design, illustration, live entertainment and experience design, and photography and video. It's got about 250 students and a campus in downtown Lancaster on Prince Street. As part of my job teaching first years, I'm often in contact with Dean Adonik as I frequently refer students to her for various reasons. She's kind of the catch-all for students with problems of all kinds, academic, personal, emotional, even financial. She's an excellent colleague and I want to learn more about the wide-ranging role she performs for PCAD. Jessica Adonik is technically an education administrator, but I think she's much, much more than that. So why don't you go ahead and, and just tell us who you are and, and how you wound up where you are. And, and well, yeah, how deep do you want me to go? Like, do you want me to be like, you know, Veni Vidi Vici, I came, I saw I conquered. Absolutely. I, yes. Yeah. You, should, you should really, that's the pro- approach you should take. Well, hello, I'm Jessica Edonic and I am the Dean of Students at the Pennsylvania College of Art and Design. And I grew up near Cleveland, Ohio. And um, my both my parents are public school teachers, so I think there's this bent to me becoming uh, an educator and um, really valuing education and and what it means to support people along that journey so they can reach their greatest potential. And that was always the conversation at the dinner table. And I went to college at Miami of Ohio. Um, between a cornfield and a soybean field um, (laughs) (laughs) in the southwest corner of Ohio. Um, I wanted to be a medieval historian for a while. I think you and I have talked about that, Sam. Um, A little bit, yeah. Yeah. And uh, so I then did my graduate work at Western Michigan University because that was the home of the Medieval Institute. But then I found myself, um, I love history. I love I think because they're the stories of people's lives, and I always enjoy people. So, but I found myself sitting in archives by myself, looking at thousand-year-old parchments, and I'm like, maybe this isn't for me. Mm. Um, so I moved into student affairs because um, I was like, oh, you could stay in college like your entire life and do this as a career. That's cool. Um, <laughs> so I was very active in our graduate student association, and then the student affairs friends uh, recruited me into the higher ed program. So then I got my master's um, in counseling and higher education, which is something I use every day. Yeah. And uh, then I moved out to Philadelphia and I worked at Drexel University for 11 years in various capacities focused on commuter students and transfer students and off-campus housing and graduate students and online learning. Um, it was a great training ground. And I was, then I was an academic advisor for a little bit. And then I came to PCAD and uh, live out in Chester County and um, with my kiddos and my husband. And so here we are. So uh, why PCAD? You know, I never wanted to be a dean of students. <laughs> that, that was not on my agenda. Um, but when I was at, I like when I was at Drexel and, um, you know, job postings pop up um, and PCAD popped up, like I felt like this, that job and the school, like all of my 
life's trajectory had led me to the moment where I would be in a place to be in a position like this and at a school like this. And Drexel is a, a massive institution. It has 26,000 students. Um, it's geared definitely, differently. It's, it's business oriented. Um, it's just a massive enterprise. And I wanted, and I felt like I was having a lot of transactional interactions with students and not so much transformational. So I wanted to go somewhere smaller. Now, micro college wasn't necessarily the place I wanted to, to go, but um, like definitely a smaller place where I could really get to know the students um, and really feel like I was making a difference in some way, shape, or form. Um, so that, and then the creative environment is also something that really yeah. drew me to the college. Um, and I didn't realize how much that would mean to me until I got into the position. So you said you grew up outside Cleveland. Yes. Uh, and then you moved to Philadelphia. Yes. Those are two mid-sized American cities. Yes. And then you move to Chester County, which for anybody who isn't aware of, you know, what central Pennsylvania is, um, you know, it's not the same kind of size and ur- ur- sort of urban environment that Cleveland and Philadelphia are. And then Lancaster itself is its own. Mm-hmm. <laughs> for those of us who know, it's this own, it's its own little kind of like enclave uh, with its you know, own kind of personality and, and quirkiness. So uh, as someone who lived in those places, what is it like moving here? Because I, I had the same experience because I've lived in Chicago, Los Angeles, New York, and then I moved here from Los Angeles. Uh, and it's a huge difference. So how do you fit into that in terms of like the difference between living here and an urban environment? I think for me, the, the bigger culture shift was a Midwest to an East Coast shift, um, like mentality wise. Um, like learning the rhythms of Philadelphia um, compared to a Midwest slower paced um, kind of more open arms city. And so I had to learn, like I, I was really quiet for a while because I was watching and I was learning what the culture was and how to operate in that culture. Mm, Um, So like Philly friends, um, like if you can get them one-on-one and you can start to break down those barriers, um, they are the most incredible, welcoming, loving people. Um, but you got to get through that outer layer. Um, and that's the way it was with the students too. I felt in a lot of respects, uh, you have to break down those, those outer layers. Um, like, and you have to be authentic cause they'll, they'll sense it immediately. Um, and so I think that was a shift for me. Um, and then moving, like I, I live among the Amish now, um, which is going back to a more slower paced environment. (laughs) The the slowest of of all (laughs) paces. Given those traffic jams, the Amish cause. Um, so I, but I find that with the work that I do now, it's a lot of emotional lifting and, moving and thinking and doing different things in many different ways every day. And so coming home to a place where it's quieter and more peaceful, um, where I can reflect has been very helpful. So I, I, I like that I get to visit the urban center, but I also like to be able to leave the urban center and go home. 
what is in your mind kind of the vibe of Lancaster City, and what role does sort of PCAD play? Because you mentioned, you know, uh, this is a bit of an extrapolation from your previous comment, but you mentioned that there's this, that you know, the the artistic element, obviously, because you know mm-hmm. PCAD is a school of art and design. Mm-hmm. So what what what's the sort of the vibe of Lancaster as far as you can parse it, and PCAD being sort of you know right smack in the middle of it. Um, does it fit? Because and I asked this question because we're going to get to the nitty gritty of this in a second, which is like the students and the students inner lives. Um, because that's what we both kind of um, tackle every single day, as you just kind of mentioned the emotional lifting. And I, you know, I'm trying to get the sense from them about like whether they think that Lancaster is conducive to kind of the work that they do and the mentality that they have and the ideology that they hold. Because a lot of them, it's it, a lot of them seem like they come from, you know, r- more rural environments where they were like the outcast, you know, yeah. where they didn't quite fit in. So in your mind, how does Lancaster kind of, how would you describe it and how would you kind of like paint it in, 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 in those kind of terms? I'm going to talk through the lens of PCAD, I think, but I have to go back to Drexel first because um, I have to kind of talk about the philosophy of being an urban institution um, and what that means for the community. So uh, Drexel is situated right in what they call University City. It's across the street from UPenn. There's the University of the Sciences. Like there's just it's West Philadelphia light. Um, as you head in, like if you hit 50th Street, that's like really West Philadelphia. Um, but the, Drexel's at like the 33rd, um, and but just north of uh, Drexel, Drexel's in the Pelton Village neighborhood, and then just north is Mantua, which is where the Philadelphia Zoo is. And that was under the Obama administration, a federal promise zone. And so you have this dissonance between this resource-rich institution and this neighborhood that where faculty, staff, like a more affluent, used to be like the, the richer suburbs, like the railroad magnets would live in that particular area um, mm-hmm. across the Schuylkill. Um, and there's still that feel there. Um, but they're just north is this very impoverished neighborhood. And I feel like if you cross Spring Garden Street, you leave one world and walk into another. Access to sustainable food, um, neighborhood engagement. Um, there was a lot of issues around housing because houses were passed down from family member to family member, but there's no paperwork. So to mm-hmm. get work done or get promise zone money, you had to show documentation and that wasn't happening. And I just feel like there's this huge disparity between one side of the street to the other. And so looking at the Drexel as an urban institution, situating a center for civic engagement right in Mantua to say we as an institution have the responsibility to educate, to engage, to understand. Maybe that's, where Drexel needed to do some work, really understand what the community was experiencing so that it could, um, you know, provide opportunity and access um, to individuals who um, maybe weren't having that privilege or experiencing that privilege in their life for a variety of different reasons. And so with that mentality in mind, coming to PCAD that is situated right in the downtown area, um, I think that especially around the arts, which is a neglected area now in K through 12. Um, mm. Specifically, there's not value necessarily mm. given to that. But moving into the future, 
this creative space where people can, and then we'll get to this later too, I think about around communication, which I think is a deficit in civilization today. Um, being able to huh, yeah. articulate and convey meaning in ways that touch or move or foster social change is really the incredible power of PCAD. And we have been very internal and need to do a much better, better job in going to the communities in which don't trust, um, that don't see that as a space for them. Um, that don't think that these op opportunities are for them or even really understand what it means to access something like that. Um, and Lancaster itself as a city is a home of various populations, majority Hispanic or Lat Latinx. And I feel like they're pocketed. They're not, it's not a spread. And so we, PCAD tends to operate right now in communities where we feel more comfortable. Mm-hmm. And so we have to learn under, this is where I'm talking about being quiet, yeah. um, going into communities and just listening and being quiet and understanding the culture so that we can engage in ways that are meaningful for that culture. Uh, so that is something that white people don't do very well. Um, we tend to talk and talk and talk and not listen. Um, you know, I say white people, but I mean, I, I'm talking about like, I, I'm thinking about it in terms of like, you know, U.S. imperialism, <laughs> yeah. uh, which is, it, it's, there's a trickle down uh, effect there, but like U.S. imperialism, which is like, oh, this Middle Eastern country needs democracy. Let's go there and force it upon them. Mm -hmm. uh, this country needs, you know, this African country needs access to this resource. Let's go make that happen because, you know, we are the protectors of the world and we know what's best for everyone who's black or brown. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I feel like, you know, that's a sweeping generalization, but I do think that that's the mentality and there's a lot less listening as you were, as you were saying, and a lot more like, here's all this money that we as, you know, forthright, morally centered, liberal white people have, mm -hmm. we're going to give it to you, but we're going to tell you how to use it because we know the best way to use it because of the way that we brought, we grew up in the, and, and the values that we have. And we're not going to think about your values at all because we know what's better. Uh, your your comments also uh, triggered two thoughts in my head, so I'm going to share them both with you. I went to college at the University of Chicago. The Drexel experience that you're describing kind of sounds a little bit like the University of Chicago experience. And the way that we were educated about this was Hyde Park is safe, quote unquote safe, right? Mm -hmm. um, if you don't go past 60, 60th Street, the Midway, and you don't go past 47th Street on the north, and you don't go past, I guess, Ellis or one of the blocks that um, are... Um, on the east side, <clears throat> on the west side of the campus, and the Lake Michigan is on the east side of the campus. So you're like in this little enclave. Uh, if you don't go past those little boundaries, you'll be safe. But if you go into where the black people live, we can't help you. It was the was the message. And so the, what that communicated to us was like, n number one, don't go. Mm -hmm. Number two, they're dangerous. Number three, there's no bridge there. There's no communication. There's no, we're not going to foster an environment in which you are going to become a productive, engaged member of the community that you're living in. Even if it's only for four years, we, we're not going to facilitate that whatsoever. Uh, and that was the message that we got. And I think that, you know, the community itself kind of was aware of that. And, you know, there were like Chicago, regular Chicago cops and University of Chicago cops who were in some sense like much more vigilant than the regular Chicago police who were local. 
So that's one thought that I had. And the second thought that I had was, now I've forgotten it because I talked too long in the first one. <laughs> uh, the, uh, oh, the, fir- the, the second thought that I had was along the lines of what you were talking about, um, there's been a, I sense a shift even from last year to this mm-hmm. in the way that PCAD recruits and looks for students and um, tries to provide a more embracing uh, environment for, for, the local, for local kids um, who may not necessarily have recently had access to this kind of environment. And one of the things that we're facing, and this is going to launch us maybe into the second phase of our conversation here, one of the things that we're facing, as you well know, is that a lot of these students who are coming to our school uh, are not equipped, I guess, or not, see, equipped is, is the wrong kind of word because it, it, it implies that somehow they're deficient. Um, they're not deficient academically. They just haven't, they haven't been given the training that, that we as a faculty have been trained to hold as paramount. That is to say, I think to be crude about it, like you know, we're a pretty white faculty. And so therefore like, um, you know, the, the educational experience that we expect uh, is not the one that these kids are generally getting. And so they're coming to us in our mind, sort of deficient of certain skill sets when in fact they've been left behind by the educational system big time because of its totally rotten, internal, corrupt, structural, racist foundation. I'm noticing that there is fallout from that. And um, while it's, I think that it's really important that of course, PCAT opens its doors to as many people as possible as you were, as you were describing, um, we need to do somehow a better job or like, I don't know what the answer is. All I know is that there are a lot of students who are struggling right now, really struggling emotionally because of that. Can you respond to that as, you know, Dean of Students, given whatever range you feel comfortable in? Yeah, I think, yeah, thank you. I think that's a great observation. So I think from a learning, like from a collegiate, like you talk about college level courses and you are teaching a course that we would consider one of the courses you teach is considered what we would say developmental, right? It's not Mm -hmm. at the college level. And so we have already determined or academia has determined that college level equals this. So you have to have a level of knowledge or learning acquisition um, to be at this particular level that we have determined as a society that you need to be at in order to be considered college level, right? Mm -hmm. So there's this there's a storyline going there in that way. I think for some of these students that are coming in is that they have gravitated to visual arts or visual making in some way, shape, or form. And again, we've ta- I mentioned like that is not necessarily a valued trait. Like you have to know math and you have to be able to write. And these are the, these are the core things that you are assessed on that have value. And so how you show up in the classroom um, and how you participate in that learning is determined by these particular outcomes. And if you don't show up that way, how does that impact your participation in that learning environment? So how does that allow you to have discourse? How does that allow you to have agency? Mm-hmm. How, does that, um, how does that create that narrative around who you are as a human being? So I hear from our students a lot of like, well, um, I can't do that. Like I have a learning disability, so I just can't do that. Um, That is the narrative or that construct that's been developed around that particular student. They've been labeled that. And then that learning environment has been constructed around them to emphasize that label. Mm. Um, 
and then or like you're good at math or you're good at like so there's this narrative that has been developed whether that's through their family whether that's a lot of students will say teachers in high school um said this about them and so they have internalized that and that is their narrative so they come in like i am not this and Mm. i can't do this and so they come in already with that mentality so we have an uphill battle and showing them that they have value in what they bring to a learning environment, even though it's not been appreciated maybe at other levels um, because of this outcomes-based learning that we have in K through 12, but helping them start to shift that narrative. And that's something that we're going to be working with, especially our foundation students on and changing like from, I can't, and I'm not to I can and I am. And like, what can I bring to the table? Like, what are all my strengths and how do and how I see the world? Like creatives in this space, like we can talk about all this technology and AI and VR and what's coming in the 21st century for careers that don't even exist yet. And so all these computer models are going to be dictating to us as human beings, um, what data we should be looking at and, and operating on. But the creatives, like you can't replace creativity. So they are so necessary in our society moving forward to ground us, to help us think differently, to say like, we always think of like think outside the box, but for them there is no box. Mm. Um, so they are so necessary. And how do we then help them shift their own narrative so that they see that and they're able to tap into all these skill sets that they have that have been dormant because they haven't been appreciated within formalized structures of learning that they've come from. I hear a lot of that. And I hear a lot of pent up resentment against high school teachers who were, instead of being encouraging, were the absolute opposite. And that like breaks my heart. In my case, like I'm concerned about their writing, right? And so like I hear it from students who are good writers that they were shut down as high school students. I hear from students that are developing writers that they were shut down as high school students. And I hear a lot worse. And when you say, you know, the arts and creativity is not valued or less and less valued in K through 12, and I see it now as um, someone who is working with college students who were creatives at the time and didn't have that aspect of their of their arsenal, their personality encouraged in any way. So it's almost a miracle that they wound up where they are. Mm-hmm. I guess in a sense, we've diagnosed a problem. Uh, we can't go back into the past and we don't have a time machine and we can't go fix that experience for them. Uh, and to think that we can would be naive and arrogant, I think. Um, so what do we do? Uh, and I, so I'll ask you this question, like on an everyday basis and a rubber meets the road kind of thing, like a student comes in and is referred to you for what I know. I, I refer to a lot of students to you for a whole wide range of reasons. Mm-hmm. And, you know, obviously you don't have to get the details here, but if you can speak generally about what the process is by which you try to uh, first and foremost kind of like um, steam off that label Mm -hmm. that the the student has of themselves and then begin to like help them create a different narrative for themselves. What, what's the process by which that happens? The power of PCAD, the power of being small is that um, we can and, and make the time um, to understand each individual student. So when you refer a student to me, there isn't like a prescribed, like, oh, this is like, we have a process, but it's not a prescribed, like, well, then you're going to go do this and do this because we 
don't understand the problem and we would be providing a solution um, without really understanding what's happening with the students. So you might have a student that's like not turning in work and not showing up to class or not right. participating or like you call on them and they're not turning on their camera, right? In this COVID, you know, Google. Really think that's a whole other layer to this that yeah, we yeah. may have time to talk about. It may not, but, but go, go ahead. <laughs> so, so what's really happening there? Like, you know, you could be like, oh, you have time management issues. Like I will, I will talk, I can talk about two students. Um, one student like just wasn't really showing up to class. They would say they're commuting from Harrisburg. They are commuting from Harrisburg. Um, and really they're not turning in assignments. They're really not communicating with faculty. They seem really distracted. Um, like what's, what's going on there? So you could say like, oh, they have time management issues and they need to work on their communication. Um, like what Einstein says, like you should spend 55 minutes understanding the problem and five minutes solving it. Mm. So getting the student and for me i'm like i'd like to see people in person i like to pick up i'll pick up the phone like i'll send you an email but if you don't get back to me i'm gonna call you <laughs> i'm gonna get you yes. in front of me in some way i will pull you out of class um like i i guess i have no shame around that because my goal is to reduce whatever barrier is happening or barriers are happening around you so you can focus and be creative and learn and not have to worry about all this other crap that is surrounding you. So for this particular student who's not showing up and not communicating well or not participating, when you sit down with that student, you find out that it's not time management and it's not necessarily that they're not communicating, it's that they live with their mother, their 13-year-old brother and their, their three-year-old toddler sister and their mother is a resident and speaks no no English. Her mother doesn't speak any English and is on disability. Um, that she is charged with taking care of her brother and her sister. They are homeless. Um, they meet. They have food insecurity, and so she has to take her mom to doctor's appointments. She has to make sure her brother is in school. She has to take care of her toddler sister, and so all of this is swirling around this 18-year-old student. And she's being asked to step up in ways that, um, as an 18-year-old, I don't even know if I could comprehend or understand. Yeah. Um, and so then we're like, well, why are you participating in class? And why are you driving from Harrisburg every day to be in like? So I feel like we have to understand what is happening there. Um, and so we, luckily we have a staff member who uh, speaks Spanish. And so we have been, she's been speaking directly with mom. Um, so that language and culture are appreciated also in that moment. We want the student to feel seen and heard. There's a lot of development theory in student affairs. And so um, mattering and marginality is one theory it's by Schlossberg, 1989. Um, and <laughs> you know, like geeking out here. Um, when a student feels valued and they feel seen, we all want to feel seen, right? Mm -hmm. um, that they feel themselves reflected in your environment, they are more likely to retain they're more likely to engage. And so we are trying to create that environment and tailor that environment for each and every one of our students um, in some way, shape, or form. Like the student I just talked about is an extreme case, um, but in little ways, um, like we have a student who ha needs an emotional support animal um, and lives in our housing, and uh, she has a fish, and her fish passed away, and she is devastated. 
um, and had a little burial for it and was texting me about it, like very upset. And um, it was just really down. And then she broke up with her boyfriend. There was a bunch of other things playing into this. So she was just devastated. I was like, why don't we, why don't just get her a new fish? So I, I got, I got her and she comes from a pretty rough home life as well. And so I invited her to my office. We had a meeting and I said, you know, here, there's someone here who wants to meet you. <laughs> and so there was this new beta fish and she sobbed and she's like, no one has ever done anything like this for me. And she says, like, she's reading a book that she works with her counselor on called like mothers who can't love. And she's like, I feel like you're the mom that I was always meant to have. Mm. And so, yeah. So those are the moments where like, I got teary eyed. Um, that really show me like what I'm supposed to be doing. Like there's so much darkness that I need to like suck that out of them and like push out light. And so if there's little moments like that, where it changes their entire, entire trajectory. Um, so major homelessness, like working with the family, appreciating their culture, having, showing them that they are seen and heard and valued to little moments like that, um, transform that entire environment. So you can't be everything to everyone is the problem. Why not? <laughs> well, okay. So you say why not? But like, it sounds like like it, there's, I know that there are, you know, I personally know that there are a number of cases like that. And how do you do it? How do you make sure that every individual gets the, because you're only one person. Right. And I know it's a micro college and so there's a smaller population, but even so, like the cases that you just described seem like you know, pretty in in depth, like you need to do some, a lot of thinking, a lot of time spent, and there's a lot of demands on your time. Plus you have a family. The refrain in, um, in the liberal arts department is, oh, um, have that person contact Jessica, (laughs) have that person contact Dina Donick. And since that's the refrain, you know, it happens like at the beginning of semesters, middle of semesters all the time. And I think to myself, is there ever a point where she's like uh, overtaxed? Is there ever a point where she's saturated with these, you know, and because some of them are small and some of them are big and I imagine you have to prioritize sometimes. Mm -hmm. So, you know, like, does it ever get to the point where it's like, I don't have enough. How do you compartmentalize it all? Yeah. Not very well sometimes. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I love our students. Like they're amazing people. So, we talk about a lot of that about emotions. So I have to make myself emotionally available to them. Mm-hmm. And so I have to make sure that I am as an individual set up for that. So, you, cause you can't help the people that you need to help unless you've helped yourself. So I think I have to focus on myself. Like I go to the gym and I run and I do things that fill up my soul so that um, I can be grounded and then turn my energy toward them. Um, and I didn't do that well at first. Like I would get, horrible migraines, um, mm. horrible. Mi- and I know like I, cause I was sucking in all this poison. Right. Mm, yeah. Um, and so I had to learn to create like shields or like ground myself or do things that like got that out so that I could do what I needed to do with that student. Um, the other pieces is that I, we have an amazing, amazing team at PCAD, like faculty and staff like yourself included that go way above and beyond on a daily basis to support our students. And so I am lucky in the fact that I can tap individuals who are just as dedicated as I am to enhancing the student experience and meeting students where they are and making sure that they're taken care of and supportive and moving forward as human beings in this world. 
um, whatever identity piece or family piece or a mental health. That's a big, big one is happening around them um, that they have the support that they need. So we have an amazing counseling team. Um, Like we have like 26 students in individual counseling right now. And for a small school, that's quite a number of students. Um, We have a core retention group that we go through every student, literally every student um, and say like, what do they need? Can someone call them? Can someone reach out to them? I, I was about to say, I can't tell you how many kids say to me, like, I have some kind of, you know, depression or anxiety or something, but, but <laughs> I, you know exactly how many I have because like, mm-hmm. you know about all of them. And um, each year, like, so this is the sort of third semester that I'm teaching and it's like a large number of kids have said, you know, this is my situation. And number one, it's, I think that it's really good that they can, they're at the point now where they can articulate this. And I've said to kids many, many times, you know, 25 years ago, when, which sounds ridiculous, when I was in college, um, (laughs) there's no way I would have had that kind of language. Mm -hmm. Um, And so there's something, there's, there's, there's progress being made, let's say, in terms of getting that language out of the realm of the, of the taboo, out of the realm of the, you know, unspoken like the the you you mentioned mental health and so like let's just put it under that rubric the topic of mental health is something that has become i think more and more uh accessible and okay to talk about Mm -hmm. and okay to be upfront about and that was you know a generation ago because that's me um i don't think i i think maybe it was just the beginning of it but i i was not in any way shape or form familiar with that kind of that kind of language um, or that the, those kinds of um, outlets were available. Mm-hmm. And so now what we get, at least in, in, you know, sort of in my experience is kids who are like, number one, willing to say, okay, like I recognize that um, there's something wrong here and I'm not coming to class. I'm not participating. I'm not doing the work. Uh, and here's what I'm suffering from. Uh, but I find that like, there are a lot of conversations that I have more than I ever would have expected, I guess, that involve some degree of admission that there are mental health issues at play. And it's, I guess it shouldn't be surprising to me because again, like I'm coming at this from like my thesis is everything is broken. So like it fits, like everything is broken, which means that lots of human beings are broken too. And, you know, you're describing environments where people are homeless or environments where people are in abusive relationships with, you know, parents who can't love them, et cetera. Like it shouldn't surprise me that these kids are so are struggling so greatly with kind of like the basic building blocks of being a human being, and yet it's still surprising because it's I guess it's the surprise is that it's painful to see. I had to first come to terms with how this all affected me, and I had to be honest with myself and authentic with myself. Once I began to have self compassion, I could have compassion for other people, mm-hmm. and that's a real thing that I would like to sort of emphasize as something that is like very greatly missing in, in our culture and our society as I see it. I, I think that we are taught not to have compassion for ourselves, whether it's implicit or explicit. And therefore that translates into uh, being antagonistic, uh, being competitive, being uh, you know condescending, being harsh, being cruel, other people. I think you said like one of the sort of ills of civilization is how poorly we communicate. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like, I think that plays a role in this, in this too. 
somewhere in here I have a question for you, but uh, <laughs> I, I guess what I guess that what comes out of that is just like there are just a lot of kids who have these kinds of albatrosses around their neck, uh, to so to speak, and um, I personally like I, I find that I may not I certainly don't absorb as much of it as you do. But that does sort of ring a bell hole, like sucking the poison out, you know, kind of thing. Uh-huh. And there's sometimes when I walk away from class thinking like, wow, I can't believe that this student, this human being, this young human being has had to put up with that. Uh, and they're only 18 years old. Yeah. So I, I think that, you know, one of the words that we use these days, and I think incorrectly and unfairly, and it gives the wrong impression is the word identity. Because mm-hmm. um, I was going to talk about it in these terms you know, like um, gender identity, uh, sexual identity, uh, those kinds of things. And I, I just think that that like pigeonholes people mm-hmm. um, in a way. And it kind of like also signals a certain kind of bias. Right. But I, I guess like, you know, what, I, what I'm seeing a lot of is um, an emergence of people's wish to be more true to themselves, I suppose. And this becomes a point of tension between them and say their family. Mm-hmm. How do you handle that? <laughs> because yeah. that's, because that's like, you know, you're stepping into hot lava there. Like you, you, obviously in a lot of cases you do have to step into family environments, but in the cases of like, and I'll use the word identity, although maybe you have a better one, but in those kind of cases where it's like, for example, there's a student who uses a name in school that they're not called at home. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, I think several cases of that. Yep. And so, I mean, that is extremely painful to, con- to think about and that this person can't be who they are at home. And if, if, if they're like in a remote setting, they have to like mute their computer so that the, their parents don't hear what the teacher is calling them so they can avoid a huge argument about, you know, who they are. Like, how do you navigate that? And like, what is your, what do you see as your role um, in, in that arena, which is, I think, burgeoning um, and really opening up in a way that, again, I'll speak for myself, then uh, my generation, we just didn't really address. I feel like we could have like five hours of conversation on this. Um, um, sure. I, you know. Yeah. I, we'll, we'll keep going forever on this podcast. Um, <laughs> so I think it goes back to like what you said, like, what is identity? That's a term. It's like diversity. Like we just throw it around right. and we anticipate that everybody has the same meaning we're all on the same page when it right. comes to what these things mean. Right. So, but identity can be, be broken down into various components. It's like your natural, like your nature identity. So kind of the things that you were born with, like I'm tall or, you know, I have, well, I guess you could change your hair color. I have brown hair, um, you know, things like um, I'm white. So those, those things are in nature, like, I'm born with, but then there's this like discourse piece that happens where you can show up in an environment and depending on what group you show up in or what activity you're participating in, meaning is made from that presentation. It's how we participate in those activities um, and how we then make meaning in relation to those activities. That's our identity. That's I think an interesting component. So it's not necessarily my gender. That's my identity. It's how I myself um, see myself and how others respond to me in an environment where activity is taking place in. So if I am trans or gender nonconforming, this is an environment where I can be me, mm-hmm. that I can authentically 
um, and, this, I'm, and I hear this from students and I'm glad that they feel this way. Like I can show up and fully present and show and talk about um, and participate in my gender, how it's defined in this particular community. When I walk out of that building, how I present myself, how I engage around my gender, that all shifts. So it's situational how identity will show up for individuals based on the affinity groups or environments with their, in which they're participating. Like we had a student who graduated a couple years ago is like, I can be a lesbian here on campus and I can't be at home, but I can't be a Christian here, and but I can be a Christian at home. Uh. So she's like, facets of who I am are missing in, in different aspects of my experience. And that's hard especially for the trans community, that's where like where you see a lot of suicide rates is because they can't authentically, authentically be who they are meant to be. Like this becoming, right? Michelle Obama's book, Becoming. I love that title because it's about like, who is your provisional self? Like, who are you transforming into? And like the role of PCAT in that is huge. Like how we engage you and educate you and present information with you and how we reflect who you are is is just showing up in your identity and then who you are becoming um, throughout that process. So that's kind of how I look at identity. It's ever shifting. Mm. It's ever present in various aspects of where we are and who we're with. And so I think we have to realize that although this, like you said, the student is in your classroom, they're also at home. So there's this like um, fighting could be a fighting of, of different identities, even in that moment. And how does that impact how they engage in a learning environment. So that's really interesting. And then the family piece, I um, I actually love parents and families. When you engage them in thoughtful ways to say, I, and we set the parents and families up right from the beginning when we onboard student new students. And we say, this is the relationship that we want to build with you as a partner in your student's success. And this is how we're going to be able to communicate with you. And this is how we're going to be able to engage with you in that process. And here's the role of your student in owning um, their education. Parents can, and families are the best partners. Like if I typically, um, if I call a family and I, and, you know, FERPA and all that kind of good stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and I say like, we have, a, we have a challenge here and I want to work with you to support your student in this moment, they are so on board. I have meetings with parents and students all the time. I bring in other staff members. Like it is a partnership in student success. They can't be left out. There's there. I think there's something to be said for those students who are, for whatever reason, in whatever, to whatever degree, sheltering at home Mm -hmm. um, amidst this pandemic. And so you get a, um, a magnification of some of those, you know, difficulties you mentioned, like students who can be one thing on campus, but are something else at home mm-hmm. um, because of affinity groups and, and then the way that they, you know, the activities that they uh, associate with and participate in. I have heard, and I, you know, I shudder to think what kind of limitations and difficulties and extra pressure than not being able to get out of the home environment mm-hmm. and going mm-hmm. to places where there are the affinity groups for fear of mm-hmm. getting ill and or spreading a disease or get, or dying, mm-hmm. um, I want like those pressures are they're they're increasing and they're they're high pressure situations. Have you seen fallout from that? Mm-hmm. You can fold into that how your job has changed, if at all, mm-hmm. as a result of the pandemic and how you have um, chosen to operate 
um, given the you know limitations of of uh, social interaction. I think like my my goals are the same. I have to think creatively about how I'm going to engage in ways that are meaningful with students in this type of environment where I can't get them, I can't grab them out of class. Um, I can't get them one-on-one a lot of times. And so how do I, how do I grab them? How do I, um, not literally, but how do I (laughs) engage them? Um, And so we can have those conversations. And I, and to go back to a little bit to the mental health piece too, Mm -hmm. um, because you're right, because they're so, they're feeling more isolated um, they don't feel like they have as many connections in person. They have a lot of online connections, and this is where the communication piece comes into. So, well, first I want to say mental health. And so we talked about labeling, right? So if I'm someone that has panic disorder, I'm someone that's bipolar, I'm someone um, that has anxiety, um, I have labeled myself in that way. And so I operate in that way. And what we haven't done, we've given the students the resources to better understand and be more self-aware, but we haven't given them the tools to manage it. Mm. And so they don't know when they're in a panic, full panic attack. I asked students, I'm like, so when you're in, you feel it coming mm-hmm. and you're in it, how do you work through it? Mm-hmm. And they have no tools to work through it and then yeah. get themselves on a more productive path. And then and it is their age. Like the, a lot of this is like, we know college age students are, this is where they're starting to really feel the impact of um, mental health. Um, and which is why the colleges and universities are the number one employers of psychologists in the nation. Um, it's this age group in particular, although we have a lot of post-traditional students too, um, that is really experiencing this mental health piece and learning how to navigate it. So. Um, they come in kind of with these labels again, like I can't and I'm not. Um, so breaking that down and, and showing them how to cope. And that's where our counseling team is really helpful is, is important. But then within a COVID environment. So <laughs> I have students that are at home. I, I, they're online. I can't reach them by email. They never set up their voicemail boxes. Um, <laughs> that's like the bane of my existence. Um, we try to text them now. We're, we are trying to be, um, they're like, oh, just set up a Snapchat and, yeah. and, and chat me that way. And I'm like, um, I, don't, I don't know how I feel. But like I, I'm trying to figure out, like, how do I meet them where they're at? Like, I'm not, a, like, I don't, I'm not a Snapchat person. Um, I've I don't even know what to say to that. So I have to figure out um, like how to engage them in this dumpster fire. And also there's this um, mentality of the, the world is on fire. Yeah. And I am just trying to survive. So the fact that you're asking me to think at this higher level of cognition, that you're asking me to be creative, that you're asking me to come up with like 50 thumbnails of this project um, the fact that you're asking me to write a thesis paper, like, why do I even care about this paper? Right. What is this going to do for me in my life in this right. moment? It's very short term in the moment. How am I going to survive? There's not as much future thinking. I, and this is mainly for, I would say, our first year students, our juniors and seniors, because they've been in person, because they've kind of been through the PCAD experience, are much more grounded. Like, they still have, they still freak out and have anxiety, but they kind of, understand what's happening and why it's happening our first year students like have no concept of this i feel for the most part um yeah that that jives with my experience yes 
And, and so transition issues, we talked about K through 12, mental health, isolation, although like they are this generation, they are the ones that write the most, right? They're always texting and Snapchatting and Instaing and all that stuff. Um, but they don't know, they're missing the interpersonal piece. And this goes back to communication. They're missing that personal human connection, that empathy, that compassion piece that you're not necessarily getting in online environments. So what do we do? Right? Um, we Solve the uh, problem right now. Yeah, fix exactly. Fix, fix it right now. That's right. Um, that's like this America world peace answer. Um, yes. So, you know, it's going to take a culture shift. Um, it's going to take immense amounts of compassion from adults or even in this cosmological event, right? We are trying to make meaning of what's even happening around us as adults. And so normally as adults, we have experienced what our students are going through, right? Right. In some way, shape or form. So we can identify, but we ourselves don't even understand what we're trying to make sense of. This is a conversation I have with my children all the time where Mm -hmm. I'm like, I've never experienced this before. So in a lot of ways, you know, I'm just as night, I just as like clueless as you are, which of course they don't want to hear because (laughs) I'm their dad and I'm supposed to know everything. Right, right, right. Sometimes I have to be honest and just say, look, I've never experienced this before. So like, I'm going to make a lot of mistakes or I'm going to say, I don't know a lot of the time. Right. And so there's, they're looking for normalcy. They're looking for something that's sure. They're looking for some guidance and the adults in their life right now don't always, they, they don't necessarily have those answers. And so there's, there's this like swirling out there and there's this uncertainty that's surrounding them. And so I, like, I really feel that from our students are like, I don't care about this our history paper. Like, yeah. I just, I just can't, like, I, I'm just not there. I, I wish there was some way to commute to them. This idea, this coping mechanism, this idea that I use, which is like, if you throw yourself into something mm-hmm. like completely and fully and you dedicate, you commit completely to it. That is a way to actually move through a really terrible time. Mm-hmm. Um, so it actually is even more imperative that you do this art history paper yeah. in, the, in the most engaged, the most focused way possible because it serves two purposes. One is, you know, you're actually doing the, 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 the assignment the way that it's meant to be done. And two, you get to step away from the dumpster fire, as you put it, for a little while at least. They don't see it that way. No. Um, so that's that's sort of a failed enterprise on my part. But like some, you know, sometimes I can I can like, get them away from it a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, not completely because, you know, I don't want to pretend that it, everything's okay um, because that would be also equally harmful. So the idea, my, my approach or my attempts have been to like say like, okay, you think it's shitty right now. <laughs> um, Malcolm X is writing in 1960 or giving this speech in 1964 and look what he's saying about the plight of African-Americans. And, you know, has that changed any in 55 years? Uh, and, and if it hasn't, then, you know, a, maybe things aren't like quote unquote as bad, um, or B actually there's still work to be done. And so therefore like, you know, let's do it instead of hiding our heads in the sand. Although the temptation to hide your head in the sand is really, really great, which, you know, I get, uh, and sometimes that comes through and, and, and sometimes it doesn't. And I think for the most part, this, this semester, at least students have many, not all students have responded to that approach. Like, let's be honest and authentic about what's happening out there uh, and engage with it and have it kind of like permeate some of what we do in class, because it's all in our minds. We're not, we're not fooling anyone by, you know, talking about like a short story written in 1975 
we can't just pretend that there isn't, you know, there aren't through lines here, you know, especially when it comes to like structural racism and, and, and yeah. things like that. I think as we look at the curriculum, like again, like that's academia and we have said, this is the curriculum. This is what it means to be in higher education. Um, this is what you must learn to be an art historian or, you know, you know, competent in drawing. Um, but I think tying it to what's happening in their world. So um, as our students of color look around, what are they thinking and experiencing and how is what they're learning in the classroom reflective of their experience and how is it tied to what is happening in their world right now? And I think having them reflect on what they're learning and tying it to, again, identity or um, what's happening in the present um, might make them see the value or like this return on investment that they don't see otherwise. I've heard from them. They're like, they're like, I didn't think about going to college at all. Uh, you know, and now I'm in college and I'm not really sure what my discipline is going to be, but I'm interested in this. If there is a ray of hope here, it actually comes from embracing the unknown. I think what you're describing right now is a recipe for our ingredients for like building a new this is going to sound really cheesy, but building a new tomorrow yeah. <laughs> and like, and like there, that's, that's where they are, um, whether they're aware of it or not. And it's hard to be aware of it that way because everything is so the darkness of everything and the shittiness of everything is emphasized by all the media around us. Um, and people's attitudes and the looks on people's faces, frankly, um, there isn't a market for optimism. Is there anything that else that you'd like to sort of mention about, um, yourself or, uh, potential fixes to existential dread and decay. Uh, <laughs> now, now would be the time to offer them up to, you know, the, the small group of people who hear this and be like inspired and then go ahead and change the world. Yeah. I, I think it, like you said, it comes down to compassion and be making yourself available, which can, I think a lot of people think that kindness can be weakness, but mm. it takes a lot of strength to, um, give of yourself without expecting something in return. And so, and, but that puts you in a really vulnerable space. So having courage to be vulnerable and authentically show up in spaces where you are okay with being quiet, that you're okay with listening, that you're okay in engaging in really tough conversations and just saying to people like, I am here for you. And I care about you. And I know that, that again, can be that vulnerability piece. And, mm -hmm. like, we want to move forward together. And that is always my messaging to students. It's like, you're not alone. Like, you are cared for and valued. And we're going to do this together. All those hours harvesting and all those fruits were fake. As to see Utopia and God, the promised land, I want love to be left. Thank you for listening to this episode of What We Will Abide. You can find older episodes by going to the What We Will Abide website or Facebook page. Or use your favorite podcast app, navigate to What We Will Abide, and subscribe. You can also rate this podcast and write a review on Apple Podcasts, which helps newer listeners find the show. Music for this episode was You and Me and Everyone by Jordan Capizzi. He helped found the Nielsen Family Band, whose most recent release is the Small Space EP. 
What We Will Abide is supported by My Store, Riverbend Comics, an online comic book and bookstore located in York, PA. You can check us out at riverbendcomics.com for old comics, new comics, and comics that tell timeless stories. Thanks again. Every minute looking up at every falling sky Bleeding hearts bloom in orchards bloom with apples of our eyes I'll learn to love and not to worship, learn to sing instead of lie All because of you and me